0: John 1, John's Gospel, chapter 1. The entrance to the Christian life is Jesus Christ. The motive for the is, is faith in Jesus Christ. The motive for the Christian life is love for Jesus Christ and the goal of the Christian life is going to be with Jesus Christ. So there's nothing better we could do now than consider him. And we're going to do that using John 1, verse 14. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this morning was Matthew's main message about the birth of Jesus. This evening is John's main message about the birth of Jesus. And the plan is that next Sunday morning is Luke's main message about the birth of Jesus, but currently that's just a plan. Now John packs such concentrated mind-blowing truth into these first 18 verses that we're only going to look at verse 14. And we're only going to look at the first four words of verse 14. And we're only going to scratch the surface of the first four words of verse 14. So the plan is that we think about the word, and then about became flesh, and then about what it means for us. So let's get straight into that. First of all, the word. The word. Now, verse 14 obviously points back to verse 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word, Word, Word. What does John mean by this repeated use of words? Well, let's think about two different readers back in John's day, back then, to help us as the readers now. That's often helpful, not to start with us, but to start with the people then, What was it for meaning? How would it come across to them? And then from that, well, what does that mean for us? So, two different readers. The first is a Jewish person. And his way of thinking would be Hebrew and totally shaped by the Hebrew scripture. Now, this person would be very familiar with how the Bible starts. He would know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But this Jewish person might find some oddities in that chapter, familiar chapter in the Bible, like how creation starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but then it very quickly, right at the start, says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this Jewish person would think, what does that mean? Maybe you think, what does that mean? Sounds like a bird, doesn't it? Brooding over the eggs, bringing it to life. Is that the picture we're being given? But then what is this Spirit of God? What's the relationship between the Spirit of God and God? And, or who is this Spirit of God? Is it a person? It's phrased like that. And this Jewish person would find an oddity at the start of creation. But also at the end of creation, it reaches its peak. How? Let us make man in our image. And he thinks to himself, that sounds as if God was in council, but in council with whom? Who's the let us? Who's God speaking to? In our image, that sounds as if God's plural. How's that? Because the greatest statement of Jewish faith is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this person may then think of Proverbs. I and mean, I think, well, in Proverbs I read uh, wisdom being personified, wisdom spoken of as if it's a person, sometimes a woman calling to people at the marketplace, but also a, a young man. A craftsman, an apprentice, at God's side, enjoying creating alongside God. What's going on there? He, he wonders how that fits with Isaiah, where he reads, He who created the heavens and formed the earth says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Or he wonders how it fits with what he reads in Deuteronomy: "I bring to life, and there's no God besides me." Who's this craftsman at his side then bringing to life? What's going on, he thinks? Well, he reads on in his uh, Bible, and as he does so, moving well beyond creation, he finds cropping up every so often a strange character, a strange character called the Angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, like we have in the Christmas stories, but the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord, that means he's a messenger from God. And we find him speaking as one representing God. And yet we find the people whom he appears to, when they discover more about him, they get filled with fear because they say, we've seen the Lord himself. How can we survive? What's happening there? Who is this strange being, the angel of the Lord? He thinks, who is this angel if he takes on the name of the Lord? Because the name of the Lord is so holy, isn't it? That a Jewish person won't even say it in case he said it in vain. In other words, took it wrongly. And that reminds him of another verse he's found confusing. Psalm 138, verse 2. It says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Well, your name, that's quite familiar to him. It's so exalted he won't even say it. It's above everything. But your name and your word? Is this idolatry with the Bi- of the Bible, putting it on a level with God's name? Or is there some meaning of the word that goes beyond what he's understood so far. There are these mysteries there in this Jewish person's scriptures that he reads and is so familiar with but finds there's things that confuse him. And then he gets to John chapter 1. And what does he find in John chapter 1? He finds all these strands of the Old Testament are drawn together. All these mysteries are revealed. Remember in the New Testament, the word mystery does, doesn't just mean, oh, it's just too hard. It's just like a vague fog. It means something in the Old Testament concealed is now in the New Testament revealed. That's what a mystery is. It has a very definite meaning. And he finds that the mysteries that were concealed from him there are now revealed. John is saying, this word you read about exalted alongside God's name. This wisdom creating alongside God is a person and is a person who was with God back in the beginning and who was creating everything along with God without taking any glory away from God because this word is God. Because God is plural. No wonder he can say, let us make man in our image. He's one God in three persons. John is revealing mysteries that were hidden there in the Old Testament but were there, latent, and they're being brought out. That helps us understand what's going on in John 1. But now, let's think about another reader of John's Gospel. This time, someone with a very different mindset. What would be a very different mindset back in John's day? Oh, the Greek person. The Hebrew person, he's a monotheist, he's clear on the Bible but he finds some things in it confusing and are hidden to him. The Greek person, no, he's quite different. He's got this pantheon of gods and goddesses, a chaos of all these different, Zeus, Hermes, Athena, Apollo, Artemis and a whole load of others, half the time squabbling and fighting with each other. But behind them, this Greek person believes in a principle, governing everything. It's a bit like, well, we talk about the laws of the universe, don't we? Laws of nature, moral absolutes, governing everything, a principle, or he might call it a logic. Which is the same word as this here. The word, logos, logic, the word. That's this Greek person's mindset. Just to step out of the Greek person, think about the Greek person, we can be a bit like that, can't we? Okay, I doubt anyone here is a believer in Zeus and Artemis, but we can believe like this, can't we? There's us and there's God way above us, but behind God, there are these principles that govern everything. Behind God and us and constraining both God and us, laws of nature, okay, God sometimes breaks out of them, we call that a miracle, Moral absolutes, things like it's wrong to be selfish. We act as if they're principles behind everything, even behind God, and they constrain God and us. And to that Greek reader, or to us if we think like that, John says, don't add Jesus to your pantheon. He isn't one of a whole number of gods with some principle behind him, lying behind him, constraining him. He isn't a mere agent of a chief god to do his work for him. There is nothing superior to him. Nothing superior to him. He is the great principle. He is the logic. He is the word. But he's a person. A person who's with God. A person who created everything. And a person who is God. Now, let's move out of the abstract. That might all sound rather abstract to you, although I hope it's been a help to think about what John is doing here and what he means by this word. Let's get out of the abstract. Let's go on a tour of the universe. Let's go into space and watch the death of a star and marvel at the power there and the laws of nature behind it. Well, did you see what we just did? The laws of nature behind it. No. Marvel at the person behind it. The Word. It's not that there's just laws of nature governing everything, there's a person. The Word governing everything. He's behind it all. There's no principles behind him. No, he's the originator of all the principles. They flow from his character and who he is. Let's go uh, from space back to planet Earth and down into the oceans and see the colours of the coral reef and then go down deeper and watch the glowing light of the anglerfish. And then go down deeper and it's going to get very cold until you feel the hydrothermal vents down there in the cold depths. Who put them all there? First one tells us, doesn't it? The words. He put them all there. And then let's go off to an island in the Atlantic and watch the dance of the chin strapped penguin as it greets its mate. What a funny thing it does. There's so much variety, isn't there, in creation? Who would think of all the variety? The way that different birds greet each other. The colours of the different flowers. What variety? What's the source of this? Or what great imagination did it come from? Or was there someone copied something else? No, no. It came from the word. Can you get a little grasp of how great a person this word is? No less than what I've just said. In fact, far more than what I've just said because my words have been inadequate to describe the word. We've just scratched the surface a ridiculously small amount but we must move to the next two words. Became flesh. The word became flesh. Now, what is flesh? Well, you all know you can all touch some flesh, can't you, right now? Because you wouldn't be here if you didn't have your flesh with you. Flesh, it's us human, isn't it? In other words, he became real human. John's reminding that Jewish reader. Long ago, when everything went wrong, Satan was warned the seed of a woman would come and put it all right. And now there is a woman. John doesn't tell us the name of the woman. He'll have to get her from Matthew or Luke. She's called Mary. And a seed from her, an egg from her ovary is going to become, I don't know how to phrase this, should I say a home for the word? That doesn't sound right, does it? Because it sounds just as if he's resting in this egg. Is, Is the word going to enter the egg and become one with the egg? I don't know, I don't know how to put it. It's beyond us, isn't it? But there is this egg from her ovary and there's the word. And the word is becoming flesh somehow through this woman. What we do know is it means the word will become very small, don't we? Our God contracted to a span. Let's think a little about that. Imagine, imagine seeing just a load of darkness, a black scene speckled with dots of light. And you move in closer and you see some of those dots actually are spirals. Can you guess what they are? They're galaxies. And you're moving closer to one of those spirals and it's full of millions of stars. And you're moving closer to one of them and it's what we know as the sun and you see there are planets circling around it. And you move in closer to one of them, planet Earth, and you see there are lots of countries. And you're moving closer to one of those countries, it's called Israel or Palestine, and you see it's got lots of towns in it. And you're moving closer to one of those towns, it's called Nazareth. And you're moving closer to that town, Nazareth, and you find there are many people there. And you're moving closer to those people and one of them's called Mary and you can't get in close enough to see this. But there's a tiny little life there within her. Still too small for anyone to know. It's there. And that is the word who made scale right back out again that whole universe. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly (coughs) made man he's become a real human that's what it means by flesh and as a real human he'll have real human experiences won't he so being a baby he'll experience being vulnerable and dependent and not aware of very much are they babies they're aware of some things like whether they've been fed recently or not but they're not aware of that much and that means he'll have to learn now think of this The word will have to learn to speak. (laughs) Can you take that in? The word will have to learn to speak. And then the one who made all will have to be taught by a man who's supposedly his father to hold a saw to make bits of carpentry. And then the one who invented gravity will surely at some point fall over and cut his knee because what child doesn't fall over and cut his knee? He made gravity and gravity's going to pull him down on his face. Bang. And there'll be blood he's made flesh and the one who sustains everything will sit on the well side feeling weary and needing sustenance i.e. food because his body can't cope without it real human the word made flesh what is flesh like? Well, you all know, don't you? It's physical. I've said it's human, but it's also physical. Now, that might be no surprise to you, but to them back then, this was shocking news. The Word became physical, He became made of atoms. Because at the time that John was writing, the Greeks thought the physical is bad. Salvation was escaping the body. A lot of Eastern religions think that now, don't they? Nirvana, escaping the body, escaping the physical that might seem odd to us. But then again, it might not because it has affected the church, hasn't it? We can think, we can talk as if physical and spiritual are opposites. No, they're not. In the Bible, spiritual is the physical controlled by the spirit. It's not the opposite to the physical. We can say, what what matters is the soul, not the body. Where do you get that from? Not the Bible. God made this physical world including people, including our flesh, physical. And he looked at it and he said it was all good. But flesh has become corrupted by the fall, hasn't it? Soaked through with sin, so much that, how does the word flesh come up in Romans? How how does the word flesh get used later on in the Bible? It gets used as, referring to our sinful nature, doesn't it? It gets used as the seat of our sin. So, what was Jesus' flesh like? Did he have sinful flesh? Was it fallen flesh? It's interesting, isn't it, how the word flesh is used for our sinfulness later in the Bible, and here Jesus was made flesh. What's going on? Well, let's have a look at a verse that will help us with this. Romans. Can we have Romans 8 verse 3 up? Oh, it is up. Good. I've put it up there because this is the new NIV, 2011, because it, it does it better than our NIV, on this verse anyway. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Very interesting. Our flesh, our flesh, has been weak, our flesh there is taken over by sin. And so the law can't rescue us. So Jesus came. How did he come? Well, John 1 says he became flesh. Romans says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And put the two together and you've got something very carefully worded. We've got to have both and they're very carefully worded. We've got to get this right. What does it mean? It means he fully entered into the human condition. He experienced the weaknesses and the struggles of the fall. He exposed himself to the power of sin. But he did not become subject to sin. He was in no way personally guilty of sin. He was not fallen. He had a human nature, but not a fallen human nature. Now, we are so used to the fall, aren't we? We've known nothing else that we we think... Uh, a human nature has to be a fallen human nature. No, it doesn't. Otherwise, that would mean God didn't create this world good. I think I'm going to have to say those all again because they're really important and it's easy to get them wrong. He fully entered into the human condition, he experienced weaknesses and he experienced what it's like living under the pressures of the fall in a fallen world. But he himself wasn't fallen. His nature wasn't fallen. He himself in no way was guilty of sin. He was subject to external pressures to sin, but he had no internal desires to sin. This one's really important. He was subject to external pressures to sin, but he had no internal desires to sin. I'll give you an example. He was, as a complete human, he was a sexual being. And doubtless... Satan, in his attempts to get him to sin, brought good looking and flirtatious women across his path. There's the external pressures. But he had no internal desire to sin sexually. Now, you might wonder how those both can be true, and that just shows how what mixed up sinful people we are. Do you see? As a complete human, yeah, he was a sexual being and Satan would bring pressures across his path but he had no internal desire to sin sexually. We have to tread really carefully here but it actually is a very important and quite a hot topic at the moment because there are pressures on the church to say sinful desires, well, put it, they wouldn't call them sinful desires, desires for what is wrong are not in themselves sin, it's only if you put them into action. No, no. The desires themselves are sinful. Peter says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He doesn't just say abstain from doing sin. And Jesus abstained from all sinful desires. It's quite a hot topic at the moment, you might guess, around the area of sexuality and when the inclinations become sin? So, what am I trying to say? What does the Bible say? He became flesh, but not sinful flesh. And that is essential for our salvation. Why? Because our flesh was created good, but taken captive by sin and cannot defeat it. And so he became flesh and resisted being taken captive by sin and defeated every temptation that came to him. And then in that flesh that had resisted temptation and that flesh that could feel pain and bleed and die, he felt pain and bled and died. And then in flesh, still in flesh, but flesh renewed, he rose to heaven so that we could say along with Job, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, Shall I see God? There's our hope. Our hope even includes our flesh. Well, as I say, I've just really scratched the surface of four words at the beginning of verse 14. Um, But we must move on to this and finish with this. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? Verse 14 is all description. It doesn't tell us to do anything. But there are things we should do. And I want to tell you just three of them. Here's the first Be humbled. Be humbled. Now, when do antique restorers have to work the hardest? I know nothing about antique restoration, but I presume I've got this right, because it seems pretty obvious. When the antique was originally valuable, but has been most badly damaged. Now, that's us. I'm not calling you antiques, but I am saying this. We were originally valuable. Made in God's image. Nothing inherently wrong with human flesh. God said it was good. But so badly damaged by sin, this badly damaged by sin, that it needed the word to become flesh and to become broken, bleeding, dead flesh. Nothing less would restore us. Now that should humble us, shouldn't it? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, that flesh became dead. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Our pride, and who here isn't proud? It's so contemptuous, isn't it? That's the first thing it should do for us. Be humbled. Here's the second thing we should do about it. Be confident. Be confident. Now, can you imagine a soul being with Christ. I can't. I have to admit I can't. You might think that's a bit shocking. But I can't, because I can't picture a soul without a body. Can you? I can't do it. Now, it is true that absent with the body, present with the Lord is true, and it's a great comfort. It's far better to be with the Lord, which is far better. But that isn't the final aim for those Jesus came for. He became flesh that lived, died, was buried and raised to glory so that we in our flesh should live, die, be buried and raised to glory. And I find that to be a great comfort in the face of death. Be confident. Jesus becoming flesh gives us confident hope he'll raise our flesh. There is a hope ahead that is for us body and soul. Be humbled, be confident. Last one, be worshipping. Actually, this is my number one aim this evening, is for us to be worshipping, is to raise our views of Christ. Now, if there's anyone here thinking, "Ah, oh, it's all been rather doctrinal this evening. What is this about? Is it sinful flesh or what? Oh, It's all been a bit doctrinal for me. Give me something practical. Give me something to affect tomorrow at work. Well, if you are thinking like that, I'm afraid I have to say you're thinking wrongly. Okay, I'm going to give you an example that, I'm afraid there might be some people here who are not familiar with this example, sorry to those people, but most of you know, on Thursday we had the funeral of John Manton, and we remembered a very fruitful life, and yes, behind that very fruitful life were abilities and gifts, but more crucially, behind that fruitful life was what? A focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and appreciation of him and therefore a central motive that he must be exalted. And that is what we need for a fruitful life. Okay, yes, we need some practical help too. Quite a lot of practical help actually. But without that focus on Christ and appreciation of him and that central motive, all the practical advice is useless really. So I'm aiming to do something about your thoughts about Jesus, in fact about mine too. And I'm aiming to do something a bit like this. When I was a young man, I I went to a church and there was a man there called Felix Kanotiahulu. He was Ghanaian. We just called him Dr. Felix. He was a medical doctor. And he was just our family friend. And he was, well he was just this familiar chap, he was there, he turned up, I remember, in various difficulties that we had, and he was on a level with us. And then one day I, I saw a book he'd written, and I saw on the back cover, you know how they have the authors described, and I saw this list of qualifications, the length of your arm, and these Cambridge colleges he was a fellow of, I suppose you can only be a fellow of one, and just like, I thought, wow, is that, is that really our Dr. Felix? I didn't know he was that person, that important. Our person we're so familiar with. Well, I'm aiming that we have something of the same reaction to Jesus. Is that really our Saviour, our Jesus, our Lord, our friend? This word became flesh. The one who loves you. The one who willingly came to obscurity and being mocked and disgraced. For you. That man hanging from a cross looking pathetic and weak. The one you are going to be with forever. The one who this week will be blasphemed and you'll probably hear him being blasphemed and you can speak up for him. That one is this one. He is the word became flesh.